Lord, I'm just thankful for your word today. I'm thankful, Lord, for the authority of Scripture. I'm thankful, Lord, that, that, uh, that you said, Jesus, heaven and earth will pass away, and not one iota, not one jot, not one tittle of your word will be moved. And Lord, we, uh, we're grateful that we have your word as a waypoint, as a, a guide for our life, as a, as a map, Lord, that, that it gives us direction, that it teaches us about you, Lord, that it teaches us about life in your kingdom and how to live in this world. And uh, Lord, this morning, just as your people, we acknowledge the authority of your word, Lord. We believe in the authority of scripture. And we love the written word, Lord, because it leads us to you, the living word. And so, Jesus, our heart and our desire is just to meet with you. We pray, God, that you'd correct us this morning. Lord, if we need rebuke, would you rebuke? If we need encouragement, Lord, would you bring encouragement? If we need to be taught things, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open to receive. Lord, we just open our hearts to you right now as we come to your word and pray that your spirit would speak to us, that he would make known to us the things of Jesus and the kingdom of God. And uh, we ask your blessing on this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Sweet. So we come to uh, John chapter 16 here. Or we're, we're already into John 16 and um, picking it up uh, on this evening that Jesus is hanging out with the 12. They're getting ready. Uh, he's getting ready to approach the cross. And as we've been seeing through John chapter uh, 14, 15, 16, and through 17, this was the teaching that Jesus gave to the 12 on the night that he was betrayed. And as I read this, I, I kind of feel like at this point in the evening that, that Jesus and, and the 11, Judas has departed from them, revealed as the betrayer. Jesus and the 11 have spent their time in the upper room, and it feels like to me that they're walking along the streets of Jerusalem on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane for that last time of prayer before the betrayal that Jesus is giving this teaching. And as, as he's been sharing with them a number of things, where we, where we last left off and saw him talking about was this, is that he told, the, he told his disciples about the hatred of the world. That because um, the world hated him and it, the world rejected him, that it would hate and reject the followers of Jesus. And so Jesus was telling them about the coming of the Spirit and the blessing that it would be that he would depart and go to the Father and that the Spirit would come and how they would all benefit from that. And so he told them about the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit has a ministry to the world and the Spirit has a ministry, the Holy Spirit has a ministry to the believer. To the world, the Spirit does this. He convicts. He, he argues the case of Jesus. He brings conviction. It's a, like, a, like a court of law kind of idea. He brings conviction with regards to sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. And then for the believer, the spirits at work living in us, um, indwelling us, and the ministry that the spirit has for those who follow Jesus is this, that he guides us into truth. That he teaches us the things of Jesus, that he declares, Jesus said, the spirit of God will declare, declare to you the things that are to come. He'll foretell for you. He'll tell you about the future, and he will do this. He will glorify me. He will glorify Jesus. And so it's interesting, you know, like I read this, and this is kind of amazing, this account of this gospel, because I kind of wonder, like, how did John remember all of this stuff? Like, he writes this down. This gospel is recorded decades after this evening. This evening walk from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there's like all of this incredible detail, four chapters of information about specific teachings of Jesus. And I'm like, how did John remember? Well, how, how he remembered is this. The Holy Spirit indwelt him. The Spirit of God lived in him. And one of the ministries and the roles of the Spirit was to bring to remembrance all of the things that, that Jesus has taught. And so John is writing, he's remembering all the details of this teaching, and it's awesome as we, as we go through it. And so here they are, they're on this walk from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, and we'll pick it up in verse 16. Jesus says this, A little while you will see me no longer, and again a little while you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this he says to us? A little while you will 
sorry, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And he said, what is this? Game of hide and seek? And then, and, and because I'm going to the Father, verse 18. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Isn't it funny? You ever feel like that when you read some of the words of Jesus? That you're like, wow, that's, I can't quite pin that down. What's he talking about? Jesus taught that way. Like we see that all through the Gospels that he used parables. That he told stories so that seeing people would not quite see. And he would almost like speak in these riddles and, and paradoxes. And, and you'd be asking, what is what is he saying? And here's the disciples saying this this evening as they're, as they're walking. They're like, we don't understand. And so as he's talking about, in a little while I'll be gone, and then in a little while you'll see me again, and, and I'm going to go to the Father. And they seem to be having this conversation amongst themselves that they weren't understanding what he was talking about. And what's cool is we're going to read is that we know this about Jesus, that Jesus understood them even when they didn't understand him. You know, one of the things that's amazing about the disciples is this, is that the disciples didn't always understand what Jesus was saying. Like, you think about that. This is the inside crew. They've already spent three years with him. And they didn't understand what he was saying. Do you ever feel like that? You ever go, wow, I, I don't know what, this, what the Bible is saying here. I don't understand. It seems like Jesus is speaking to me in, in riddles sometimes. And I take encouragement in, in the hope that the disciples felt like that at times. They felt like that on the very night that Jesus was betrayed. And they didn't understand him, but Jesus understood them. He knew what was going on in their hearts. He knew the questions that were rolling around in, in their minds and the chatter that was happening between them as they were trying to understand doctrine. We get in those conversations all the time. Well, I think the Bible means this. Well, I think the Bible means this. And we question. Jesus understands those things. And so he interrupts this little bit of chatter that's going amongst them. In verse 19, Jesus knew, it says, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. So I read this, and at least in, I mean, we have the benefit of hindsight. For the disciples, the riddle continues. What is he talking about? I'll be gone, you know, the world's, world's going to be happy, you're going to be sorrowful, you're going to lament, you're going to weep, and, and the world is going to rejoice. Of course, we know what Jesus was talking about is the cross here. That he was going to the cross in just mere hours and the world will rejoice. That the, the, the scripture tells us that when Jesus was nailed to the cross, those who hated him beat their chests and shouted for victory over the Son of God being crucified. Meanwhile, the, the disciples were filled with with sorrow, lamenting, weeping, they ran from the cross. They, they lost their direction. They didn't know what was going on and what God was doing. Do you remember, remember the, the, uh, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? After Jesus had been raised from the dead and they were traveling to Emmaus from Jerusalem and Jesus came and met them on that road and they were discussing the things that had happened in Jerusalem the previous days and Jesus being crucified and they did not know and dying and they did not know that he'd been raised from the dead. And Jesus said, what are you talking about? Said, Don't you know the things that have happened in our city in these days? And they told him about himself. And uh, they said to him, we had hoped. We had, we had hoped. We had put our hope in this. They were lamenting. Their hope had been crushed. Sorrow had filled their hearts. The world was rejoicing. The world rejoiced because they hated Jesus, but those who followed him uh, were full of sorrow. You know, it's interesting to think about that. I mean, we see this earlier in this text that the world does not want Jesus. 
As much as we think that the world wants Jesus, the world does not want Jesus. The world does not want his church. I, I read an article this week uh, from PragerU that I thought was just so interesting about the rejection of the Salvation Army and how there is such angst against the Salvation Army. And they're like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, all this, all this ministry does is good works to those who are poor and hurting and the downtrodden. And there is this rising angst against the Salvation Army. Why? Because they represent Jesus and the gospel, because the world hates Jesus. And so Jesus says this to the 12, I, I'm going, I'm going to be gone for a little while, and, and the world will be rejoicing. They'll rejoice because they thought that they've disposed with me. They, they will have thought that they've dealt with this Jesus problem. And you, my disciples, will, will be suffering. You know, I think about this, you know, this is on one side of the cross. We live on the other side of the cross where Jesus has returned to the Father. He's ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And, and our point in the story of Jesus is different than the disciples here that we read about. But the pattern's repeated. Our, our suffering is this. We're waiting for the coming of Jesus. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. Like That is our hope. That's, that's our longing for the return of the Lord. The scripture says that all of creation is groaning, like in childbirth, longing for the sons of God to be revealed and Jesus to come again. But the world's rejoicing. Yeah, we've disposed of that Jesus, that myth of Jesus, the legend of Jesus, that, that silly Jesus stuff. And it's interesting that Jesus, as he's talking to his disciples about this, takes the illustration of childbirth and he uses it to describe the emotions that the disciples would experience. Look at verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she, is, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Moms know this story, right? Like, I, I remember when, especially when Jonah was on his way, and the anxiety that my wife had, Lisa, with the pain and the process of birth. And, and if you've been in the birthing room, you, you, you know how it goes. Yeah, the pain is real, so I'm told. I'm, I'm sorry, I, like, you know, like Blake joking about being a single white male talking about marriage last week, you know, I can only empathize with the birth process. But there's sorrow. There's pain. But how quickly the pain and the sorrow is transformed into utter joy when that little one is held in the arms for the first time. And Jesus says this. He says, this, this sorrow that's coming for you, this, this thing that is going to be the object of pain for you, is going to produce a great joy, like a woman in labor, like a, like a human being born into the world. There, it's interesting. He's saying this, there's joy in an empty womb that's given birth. When you hold that baby for the first time, joy, joy of a human being born into the world. So, so he says in verse 22, so also, just in the same pattern, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In other words, Jesus is saying this, my leaving, my being crucified, my death is going to cause you great pain. It is going to cause you sorrow. But when I am raised from the dead and you see me again, you will understand that the sorrow of the cross was necessary so that you could have victory over sin. I'll bring it. I'll transform your sorrow to joy. I love that. I love that because Jesus doesn't say, you know, I'll substitute it. Like that's what we used to do with our kids when they were little. You know, remember when your kids were screaming, crying about something, they've got sorrow. And it's like you you'd do the substitution trick. It's like, hey, look at the plane, you know. Oh, you see that going down there? Oh, here's a lollipop, you know. And it's like if I distract them enough, then... They'll be distracted from the sorrow because they got some sweets or some sugar or 
whatever it is. Yeah, let's call grandma. Whatever, whatever the trick is that you played. You, you know, as a parent, you use the trick of substitution to deal with sorrow, distract, you know. But Jesus says this. When I deal with your sorrow, it's not going to be a substitution. I'm not going to put a lollipop in your mouth. I'm going to transform it. I am going to transform your sorrow, and I'm going to turn it into joy. Isn't that amazing? Only Jesus can do that. That is why the message of the resurrection matters to the church and the follower of Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who transforms sorrow into into joy. He produces joy from the very thing that caused us sorrow. You know who's a great example of that in scripture? Joseph. You know Joseph. Coat of many colors, most loved son of his father. And his brothers took him and they laid their hands on him and tore the rope from him that identified him as the son and they tossed him in a pit and sold him to slavers who took him to Egypt and sold him into slavery. And thing after thing happened to Joseph. He went to prison and, and then God began to work and raised Joseph up and he came to the second most highest seat in, in Egypt. And the Lord used him to save the world in the midst of famine. The Lord used him to save his family in the midst of famine and to bring them down to Egypt. And, and Joseph said this in summary of his life. When he considered all of these things, he said the, the very things that, that were the source of pain and rejection and, and sorrow, the, the, the prison and, and slavery, they were transformed. God transformed them as I just served the Lord. Not only to work for my good, that God took my sorrow and turned it to my good. He, he turned it to the good of many, that he used it for the salvation of many, for the salvation of the world, in Joseph's case. Not just his family. And you know, when we're dealing with troubles, when we're dealing with our own sorrows, I'm just, I want to encourage you, don't look for substitutions, lollipops. That's what the world gives, lollipops. They hand out lollipops all over the place. Look for, pray for transformation. That's the key, actually, to maturity, I think. It's one of the keys to maturity in the Christian walk. Is to say, Lord, I don't understand this. I don't know what this sorrow is. I don't know what this pain is. I, but I'm not going to look for a substitution. I'm going to ask you to transform it. Would you bring joy from this? Would you use it for your glory and for my good? Turn this, this sorrow into joy. And Jesus says this about to these men as he tells them, you know, you're going to lament. You're going to have pain. The world is going to rejoice. But when joy comes, when your joy comes, no one will take it from you. It can't be taken. When I transform your sorrow into joy, it'll never be robbed from you. It'll never be stolen from you because it'll be a work of my transformation in your hearts. You know, for a mother, the joy is what? An empty womb that has given birth and holds that little one. But for us as Christians, our joy is this, an empty tomb. An empty tomb is the source of our joy. You know, one of the one of the fun things about going to Israel over the years is to go and to visit the garden tomb, just this beautiful garden in Jerusalem and have a time of worship and teaching and celebrate communion there. And then, and then, and then you go to the tomb and it's like a letdown. It's not a let, actually, it's not a letdown. I said that wrong. It's like you go inside the tomb and you're like, well, I don't know what I was expecting to see because it's empty. There's no one here. Jesus isn't here. And so it's like, well, what was I expecting to see? The tomb is empty. And that is the, that is the joy. It's the joy of an, like the joy of an empty womb that has given birth to a human being. It's, it's tangible. You know, you can hold that baby and it's like, wow, look at this little one. And you look at the beauty of who they are and how God has made them and, 
and, and it's clear and it's definite and you can touch it. You can touch that little one and you can feel them and smell them and kiss them. And the empty tomb, that joy that Jesus brings when he transforms your sorrow into joy is just as tangible. It's just as real. It's actual. You can perceive it. It's like you can touch it when Jesus changes your heart, can't you? You know, it's interesting. Paul actually used the same terminology. He spoke to, to the Galatian church and he said, I'm in labor. I'm in labor until Christ is formed in you. And this is the tension we live in, this tension of, of, of the daily experience of following Jesus, living for Jesus. That you have days of sorrow and you have days of great joy. And the promise of the scripture is this, is that one day sorrow and mourning and sighing shall ever flee. What's the old hymn there? It'll be swallowed up in victory. Sorrow will be swallowed up by joy. You are going to see Jesus, church. One day, you are going to see Jesus. and No one is going to ever take your joy. That's our hope. The key to, one of the keys to the transforming of your sorrow, you know, you're dealing with sorrow today. One of the keys to the transformation of your sorrow is your relationship with the Father. You know, the disciples were living on the other side of the cross, like I mentioned earlier. The, the, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead results in this. It results in a new relationship that Jesus' followers have with the Father. And so Jesus explained this to the 12. Look at verse 23. He says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be, full, may be full. When you put your faith in Jesus, when you put your hope in Jesus and you come to acknowledge the death and resurrection of Jesus and you get saved, you're brought into a new relationship with the Father in heaven. And practically it does this, it, it changes how you speak to the Father. It changes the way you talk with him. It changes the way that you pray. Jesus says this to the 12, he says, what, once you see me, I'll be gone and then I'll come back. And when I come back, your relationship with the Father is going to be freed up in a new way. It's going to change. Your relationship with heaven is going to change. How you pray is going to change. In, in, in fact, in your relationship with the Father, you're going to do this after my death and resurrection when I come back. You're going to go straight to the Father. You're going to have straight, clear access to the Father. It's going to change the way you pray. I read this and it tells me this, that, that Jesus gives us power for transformation. Like when I talk about substitution or transformation, that he wants to transform Sorrow and make it joy? Well, the power for transformation, the power to transform sorrow into that which produces joy happens in the place of prayer. In prayer. You know, I, I've told you this many times, but like one of my favorite scripture verses is Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, Present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. I love that verse because that verse tells me that if I pray, if I spend time in prayer, God will do this with a heart of thanksgiving in prayer. God will transform my anxieties into peace. That's a transformation. It's not a substitution. It's not a lollipop. It's like real. It's tangible. It changes your heart. It guards your thinking. It's like that which is hurting you or causing sorrow or anxiety. Jesus takes it and he transforms it when we spend time in prayer. And Jesus said this, I want, in this day, you pray in my name. You go to the Father. You know, it's funny, like, 
Sometimes we treat the name of Jesus like superstitiously as Christians. It's like, say our prayer. In Jesus' name, tacked on the end there. And, you know, amen, it's like, it's like, a, it's like a football game. Like I'm the QB, and then I do the handoff to Jesus. Here you go, in Jesus' name, handoff. And Jesus runs it in for a touchdown for me. Yay, Jesus, nice moves. That was sweet. Look at Jesus isn't saying this. He's not saying, I'll run the ball for you. In Jesus' name, hand off the ball to me, and I'll run it in for a touchdown. He's saying, no. In my name, in my character, in who I am, in the work of the cross, in my death and resurrection, you go. You go straight to the Father. You go right to the Father, and you can go right to the Father and use my name. Use my name. Go directly to the Father and be bold. Saying, ask. You will receive and your joy will be complete. You know, boldness in prayer only comes as you meet with Jesus. Boldness in prayer, can, you can only be bold in prayer in Jesus' name. You know, the richest of people in the world, you know, we talk about world and riches and and wealth, the richest men and women in the world are those who pray in Jesus' name. That's like blank check to the kingdom of heaven. Blank check, signed by the Savior, signed in blood. Go to my Father. Go right to the Father and go boldly. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete, Jesus says. You can go right to the Father. The Father loves you. And, and you, you, have, you can go to him in my name. That's wealth. You know, John D. Rockefeller said this. He said that the poorest man I know is the man who has nothing but money. Money is not wealth, church. It's poverty to trust in money. Wealth is to go to the kingdom of heaven in the name of Jesus, to go to the Father. That is true wealth that transforms the richest men and women pray in the name of Jesus. And they ask big. And they ask bold for the kingdom of God. And so Jesus gives us two things that we have. We, we, have, we have joy because Jesus has come. He's, he's alive. We have joy because Jesus has defeated death and sin and the devil. And we have this. We have the ability to boldly go to the Father and ask Whatever we wish in prayer, the scripture says. And Jesus says, if you do that, if you go to the Father, your joy will be complete. It's interesting. Complete joy. Fullness of joy. You know, where's your joy at? Where's the meter of your joy in the Lord? You know, I read this, I thought, man, has he been studying this? A prayerless Christian is a joyless Christian. Like, if you don't spend time in prayer, you are missing out on all the joy, on having your joy complete, on experiencing God's transformation of your sorrow, dealing with your anxieties, your worries, your concerns. The secret to the fullness of joy is prayer. And bold prayer results in joy. And so meeting Jesus is the foundation of joy, knowing, coming to know about the cross and the resurrection and surrendering our lives to him. But bold prayer in Jesus' name results in the completeness of joy, the fullness of joy. And Jesus gave us his name to pray in. He also gave us his name to conform to. You know, I think that's one of the things that's missed in this, in this text often. You know, often, you know, we ask for things that are, you know, this is Advent, peace. Sometimes we ask for things that are not in harmony with the character and the nature of Jesus in prayer. And then we wonder, well, why isn't God answering my prayers? Why are my prayers unanswered? Jesus said, you got to conform to my, in, in my name means conforming to my character, conforming to my nature, asking the nature of who, who I am. 
That means for us as followers of Jesus, we just always want to be growing and seeking to know Jesus so that the things we ask for in prayer are in harmony with the nature of Jesus. Verse 25. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself, see it's not a handoff. It's not a football. I do not say that to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples, verse 29, his disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. So, it's funny. Plain speaking, Jesus says. I'm going to speak plainly. No more riddles. Let me sum up everything that I've just been saying to you as I talk about joy and prayer. He says to them, I came from the Father. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and I'm going to the Father. Real simple. I came from the Father into the world. I'm leaving the world and I'm going to the Father. It's not much clearer than that, right? No more middle riddle. No more, no more, no more mystery. And, and it's interesting when you think about that, Jesus is saying something that no other human being could ever say. No man, no woman could ever claim. I came from the Father into the world, and I'm going out of the world to the Father. You, you and I didn't come into the world from the Father. We, we started in this world. I started in this world. You started in this world. I, I was in my mother's womb. And her sorrow was turned to joy when I was born. You can ask her. She'll tell you. And then for the rest of her life, she just had a pain in the backside. <laughs> no, I, I began in my mother's womb. You began in your mother's womb. Humanity, the scripture tells us, began in the dust of the earth. We, we didn't come into the world. I've only ever known the world. You've only ever known the world. We can't say, I came into the world. I can't say, I came from the Father. I came from an earthly father, not a heavenly father. Not the heavenly father. We can't claim or say the things that Jesus said. Jesus said, I'm going to the Father. I can't say that. Well, I can in Jesus. In Jesus, we can say that. In Jesus, the day is going to come. We are going to go to the Father. But in myself, in ourselves, we can't, we can't say that. Unless it's in Jesus. And this is Jesus. He's speaking about his origin. You know, his, his eternal nature, his existence. He says, I, I came from the Father and I'm going to the Father. Let me read this again. Verse 29. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. These guys are like, Oh, now we get it, Jesus. You're speaking plainly. We get it. We know where you came from. You came from the Father. We get it. We know, you know where you're going. Where did you come from? You came from the Father. Where are, you, where are you returning to the Father? Okay, Jesus, we understand your origin and your nature. We understand what you're saying. Why didn't you just say it clearly, first of all? Why do you use riddles, Jesus? We... we we know that you know all things. We weren't asking. We were just having chatter amongst ourselves, but, but, but you spoke into it. And so, Jesus, we just want you to know we believe in you. We believe that you came from the Father. And if you hadn't been using these figures of speech and parables and riddles before, we would have got this a little quicker if you would have just said it simply and clearly to us. We would have been able to understand. I mean, it's, this is a patronizing answer. That's, all, that's what I read. <laughs> Jesus answered them, do you now believe? 
It's like they were speaking condescendingly. That's what the scripture actually portrays here. That it was like patronizing. Now we believe. And it's like Jesus, you know, Jesus was never sucked in by flattery and compliments. And he says, okay, okay, now you believe? But the implication of the way that he answers in the original language actually implies this, that they didn't really get it, that they still didn't get it, even though they declared that they got it. Oh, you know, you know that I know all things? It's like, don't patronize me. I know everything, do I? Yes, I know everything. I know things that you don't know. I know not only the questions that you weren't verbalizing in front of me, but I also know this, guys. I know your weaknesses. I know everything, and I'm going to tell you two more discoveries that you're about to learn about yourself this evening, this very night. And they're discoveries that you're going to learn today, and they're going to be a source of sorrow for you when you find out these things that I'm about to tell you. Look at verse 32. He says, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home, and will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. These are great verses, and these verses tell us about something that the disciples were going to discover that night, and they they're verses that tell us two discoveries that every Christian finds out about themselves. Every follower of Jesus discovers these truths that Jesus is talking about right here, about themselves. The first one Jesus says that you need to know is this, is the weakness of your own flesh. Have you discovered that about yourself? The weakness of your flesh. Yeah, no, not me. I'm talking about the person next to me, not me. You know, as we know, like when you follow Jesus... Here's the truth. It's one thing to like say, I know you know all things, Jesus. I believe in you. And to make these verbal declarations, it's a whole nother thing to live a life that's obedient to what you've confessed with your mouth. It's one thing to say, I understand. I understand, Jesus, I get it. Okay, I like get it. I like, I had my quiet time or I went to church and I've like, I have clarity. I have like clear thoughts. I have greater understanding than I had before. I've learned something about you. I believe Jesus. It's one thing to have a clear mind. It's another thing the Christian life to have a strong heart. Like to follow through. To do it. It's one thing to profess faith. It's another thing to live it. It's like the hard thing about Christianity. And one of the ways that we are robbed of joy is because of the weakness of our flesh. You know, we confess, Jesus, my thoughts about you are clear. But then the flesh, sin, gets the better of us, robs us of our joy of the Lord, and we're like, man, how did I get back here again? You know, it's one of the things that I often think about church, you know, that that people come and, and often, I, I think this is all of us, that we're like discouraged sometimes. We're like, man, here I am. But I sure sucked for Jesus this week. Like that was a lousy week. I blew it here and I blew it there and I don't deserve to open my mouth and worship. I'm weak. I'm fleshly. You come to church and you worship and you get taught the word of God and you're like, oh, it's clear. I believe Jesus. And then Monday morning comes. And the kids have got to go to school, and it's like mayhem in your house, and they barely make it out alive, let, it go to, let alone to school, you know. And Jesus here, he, he's saying, you know, you need more than a clear head, you guys. You need more than clear thoughts about me. You think you, you, think you understand, understand it all? Well, let me tell you something, guys. 
Tonight you're going to scatter. You know, like going to the beach and flipping over the rocks, searching crabs, off they go. He says, tonight you're going to scatter. You'll leave me alone. You'll scatter from me. You'll run to your homes. But guess what? I won't be alone. Even when you scatter, I won't be alone. You'll have gone, but the Father will be with me. You know, it's like difficult to discover this about yourself, that your flesh is weak. To, like I said, come to church and declare the things that we declare, to preach the word of God, to make professions, to sing things in worship, to say, Lord, I believe I understand now. And then the week gets started, like I said, and you discover how weak you are, how easily you can run away from Jesus. A situation comes and you're called to be bold and you're like not ready to go. This past week, I like, uh, I, some of you guys remember Marcus. You remember Marcus and Susie? And Marcus is a good friend of mine. And Marcus has been doing some discipleship stuff in his church, with, with his church in Nanaimo and I've been working with them. We chat every week and go over some of the material. And uh, I'm like, hey, this week, let's get together. So we decided we'd meet in Horseshoe Bay. So on Monday, I go to Horseshoe Bay to meet Marcus. And we're just having a great time talking about Lord, sitting in a coffee shop and got our Bibles and our discipleship books out and going over stuff. And we ran out of time. We didn't get all the material covered. So I'm like, I'm coming with you, man. I'm coming to Nanaimo. So I jump on the ferry and ride back with Marcus, and I just stay on the boat and come back. So we sit, we sit in the cafeteria, and we've got our Bibles open, and we got our discipleship books open. And, you know, that looks weird to people, definitely. And so as we're, as we're just talking about the Lord, and I see this woman go by, and then she loops around again, and then she loops around again, and then she's like, gentlemen, can I talk to you for a second? I'm like, oh, we're busy here. Can't you see that? I didn't say that. That's what I thought in my heart. That's what I thought in my heart. I wasn't ready for the conversation. Here we're talking about the things of God, about discipleship. She's like, could I borrow a pen? But I'm like, I know this isn't about a pen. But I'm like, yeah, here's your pen. She's like, thanks. I'll bring it back at the end of the ferry ride. Great. We go on about our discipleship conversation. Like, I know in my heart what's going on. I'm like, man, I'm supposed to be ready for what's happening here. But I'm like focused on a task. We sit there a little bit longer. There's a couple sitting beside us over here. I hear the guy say, I want to get in on the conversation between those guys. I hear him say it. I'm like, ugh. I'm in the middle of something here. I'm like talking with my friend about Jesus, man. Don't interrupt us. <laughs> and they did. They interrupted us. And I'll tell you what. I w- wasn't game on, man. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. I, I think I- I'll say it about Marcus too. I think he wouldn't mind. I don't think he was ready either. We like missed it. We talked about church and this and that, but. We didn't, we didn't get the conversation to the stuff that matters, man, like the nitty-gritty gospel Jesus stuff. I'm like, I, I just live all week with regret on something like that. You know how it is. You know how it is. That's why I share that story with you. Jesus told his disciples, he said, you're going to run. You're going to run. But the Father is going to stay with me. The Father won't desert me. A few hours later, though, Jesus was saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me as he bore my desertion, as he bore my rejection, as we scattered from him. He took it all. Jesus tells these 12, one of the things that I know about you that you don't know is the weakness of your flesh. Well, you think you're maturing and coming along, and, but I know. I know what this week holds for you. 
know what next week holds for you. Then he told them, there's something else I know. The other thing that I know that you don't know is this. That the world will not comfort you in your sorrow. That when you're dealing with sorrow, the world is not the place to find your peace. They give you a lollipop. They give you this or sell you this. But the world is not where you will find your peace. When the world finds out that you have sorrow, the world will say this, oh, you follow Jesus? Oh, I'm sorry that you struggle with your battle with, you know, the flesh. Does the world say that? No, the world doesn't say that. The world kicks you. The devil loves to kick a man or woman when they're down. Like that's when he's at his best. That's when he kicks his field goals in your head. When a man or woman is is down. That's, that's, that's when the world says, oh, you Christians, I knew it all along. You hypocrite. Look at them. Look at that person. You know, when you are in a struggle and discover your own weakness, I, I would just say this. This is what Jesus is saying. Don't expect the world to give you any sympathy. The world is not where you will find sympathy. Oh, I'm really sorry you failed to be a good Christian. The world hates Jesus. The world gloats and the world takes delight in the failure of God's people. And Jesus knew all this. Because he really does know all things like his disciples had professed. He knew the joy that would be theirs when they discovered that he had been raised from the dead. Do you remember the joy when you came to know Jesus? When you first experienced salvation, the joy that flood, flooded and filled your heart and transformed your life. Jesus says, I, I, I know the joy, the fullness of joy that will be yours when you just go to the Father in prayer and the Father answers and you're like, wow, this is so amazing. I had a transformation. God took sorrow and transformed it to joy. He also knew that they would have sorrow. Christian life is not all about joy. Jesus also knew they would have sorrow. That they would discover they were weak. That sometimes they would be cowards. That sometimes they would run away. That sometimes they'd sit on the ferry and be too busy to catch what God was doing. Jesus knew the world would kick them when they're down. Jesus knew the world would kick them when they had failed. But I want to tell you something about Jesus. Jesus doesn't kick you when you're down. He says this, get up, take heart, take heart. I have overcome the world. Get up, dear Christian. In this world, you will have tribulation. In this world, you will have trouble. Jesus, in fact, could say, look at me. The world did this. The world nailed me to a cross. The world tried its best against Jesus. Everything it had, the world brought against Jesus and nailed him to a cross. And what did Jesus do? Oh, he just rose from the dead because he's victorious over the world. When you discover how weak you are, I, I would just want to encourage you, don't descend into despair. The world will, will do that. The world will seek to take advantage of your, your depression and your worry and your anxiety and your sorrow and your despair. Jesus says this, take heart, take courage. I've overcome the world and we are going to overcome the world. I love this because Jesus says this. I want you to have peace, not despair, not sorrow, not depression. Look to me and let me turn your sorrow into joy. In this world, you'll, you will have tribulation. You'll have trouble. In me, you have peace. Did, do you catch what he's saying there? In the world or in me? You're in the world 
or you're in me. And in the world, you will have trouble. But in me, you can take heart. I've overcome the world. I love that. Like, I think about that, I just think, wow, Jesus is the best. He's the most wonderful person, a faithful friend, a loving savior, kind, steadfast in his love towards you and I. Jesus is the most wonderful person in the world. He, know, he knows you're weak. He knows that sometimes you don't understand what he's saying. He knows that sometimes you're puzzled by the riddles of his word and what his word declares to you. He knows this, that sometimes you're going to run. He knows this, that sometimes you'll feel like you've let him down. And here's what he says to you. Take heart. Take heart. Take heart. Don't get down when you let me down. I'm patient. I'm kind. You know, as we sing about Jesus, what a friend we have in Jesus. He says, take heart. I won't, I won't wash my hands of you. I'm not writing you off. I'm not calling you a bad disciple. You, you can run away after the flesh and Jesus will still say to you, get up, take heart. I've overcome. I have overcome the world. Not you have overcome. I have overcome the world and in me you will overcome this world. We're, we're overcomers because Jesus overcame. He's the victor. We just get to share in the spoils. Are you thankful for that? I, I think about this, I think about this, and it's like, it's not a reason to, to mess up, to, to an excuse to fail. It's a reason to get up, always. The gospel is always a reason to get up, take heart. I've overcome the world. This text, Jesus encourages us with regards to joy. If your joy is waning, I tell you, take a trip to the cross, to the empty tomb. Be reminded, it's... It's empty. Jesus is the victor. If your joy is waning, go to the Father in prayer. He wants to complete your joy. He wants to bring completeness of joy. He wants to transform sorrow into joy. That's a, that's, that's a key to maturing, understanding that, that he wants to transform your sorrow into joy. In prayer, he wants to turn it into full joy. He knows your weakness. And he wants you to know this world's not the place to take comfort in him, in him.